to the Grok Science Show. I'm Tom Stewart. This week I have an interview for you on plants, pathogens, and evolutionary arms races. Stay tuned. Okay, well this is the first time that at least I have had the opportunity of speaking with somebody live in studio, and this week I'm speaking with Talia Karasov, who's a graduate student and PhD candidate at the University of Chicago in the Committee on Genetics, Genomics, and Systems Biology. So Talia's research, I think, is pretty ambitious in what it tries to do. It spans genetics, evolutionary theory, and ecology. And the science is also really impressive because it uses a lot of new methods and really sophisticated computational methods. It's awesome, and we're happy to have you here. Uh, so for this next interview, we'll be talking about the struggle for good health, how hosts and pathogens interact with one another, and research on a little plant called Arabidopsis, which could have implications for how we model and how we approach disease control in agriculture across the world. So Talia, you have been at the University of Chicago for the past five years now, um, and before this you were a student at Stanford working also on genetics. So could you briefly mention your, your interests academically? Hi, hi, Tom. My interests right now stem from trying to understand the coevolution between plants and the microbes that are found on plants. So when we think about microbes, when we think about bacteria and fungus, we usually think about them as pathogens or something that's bad for the plant. And I'm interested in how plants are evolving with both the pathogens, and but then also how plants evolve with the other microbes that are also beneficial for the plants. Yeah, and you are in Dr. Joy Berkelson's lab, who is a professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolution. And you guys use a plant model system called Arabidopsis. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so a pretty consistent paradigm in people who do research is to study a model organism. So for plants, we most people who study plant biology study this little weed called Arabidopsis. And while Arabidopsis isn't itself particularly important, it isn't as important as an organism such as corn or rice, uh, many of the things we can learn from studying Arabidopsis can be extended out to our understanding of corn and rice. And because of its how it grows and how easy it is to maintain Arabidopsis, um, it is much easier to do experiments on Arabidopsis. And just like the mouse model system has become the go-to way of studying diseases in humans, Arabidopsis has sort of emerged as a way of studying diseases and pests in plants. Uh, also, it's interesting because it's found all over the world, and so it's a really interesting system for studying how plants and animals generally um, adapt to new environments. And your work, you mentioned it briefly before, is on how plants adapt and evolve in relation to pathogens. Um, and I think most people will have a general sense of what pathogens are based on, you know, how they have heard doctors speak about it, maybe. Uh, but I wondered, maybe you could offer us a definition of what a pathogen is. Sure. So pathogen in the context in which we study it in my lab and in many labs is it's a small organism, whether fungus or bacteria or other small organism that causes disease. So it reduces the health and the reproductive capacity of the organism it infects. And that collectively, reproductive capacity and survivorship is sometimes called fitness in evolutionary biology. And in response to pathogens, a lot of animals and plants have evolved ways to stay healthy and to resist these attacks. So you and me, we get 
runny noses and fevers and things like that, but plants also have a way of responding. And theirs is called, or through a mechanism known as innate immunity. What is innate immunity? Innate immunity is basically described as kind of stupid and blind immunity. So the plant has a set of proteins or uh, um, compounds that it produces that go out there and recognize general patterns on pathogens. So they're not, they're tip not most of the time specific to pathogens, but they just innately recognize certain things that are common to many pathogens. And humans, for example, have innate immunity where our bodies are programmed to produce proteins which recognize um, patterns that are common to most microbes. So a plant might be able to detect when there's some funny flagella that sort of is the kind of thing you typically find on a pathogen. Exactly. And when it notices that that flagella or that kind of cellular or protein structure is present in its body, it has a response. And so our bodies can do that too. Plants and animals have that in common. But it's also a little more complicated in our body. For example, I know that once we've been exposed to some diseases, it changes our ability and the way in which we respond to them. So chickenpox might be a good example of that, where once you get it as a kid, it affects the way that you might ever respond to that pathogen in the future. And this is called adaptive immune response. But adaptive immune responses aren't found everywhere. Do you see them in plants? Some scientists would argue that plants have something that slightly resembles adaptive immunity, but plants have absolutely nothing that compares to the scope of the adaptive immunity seen in humans. So basically, if a plant is susceptible to a pathogen, it can't recognize the pathogen, there's very little likelihood that it's going to, in the course of that one plant's lifetime, going to evolve the capacity to recognize it. That's interesting. So um, innate immunity, the ability to respond, is coded into the genome. At the genetic level, we have the ability or the, the capacity to respond. Adaptive response or adaptive immunity is a potential to respond to pathogens that arises over the lifetime of an individual depending on how and what they are exposed to. And in plants and in humans, of course, it's important to be able to figure out not just that something is foreign, but that it's harmful. There are lots of bacteria and microbes and fungus that are around us all the time that aren't pathogens and that it would be bad if we got rid of. Can you comment on how it's important in plants specifically to recognize harmful versus non-pathogenic foreign bodies? So just as Tom was saying, just as you were saying, there are many microbes that are very beneficial to plants. For the, one of the most classical examples for this are microbes that can fix nitrogen. So one of the most limiting factors for whether or not a plant can grow is whether it has accessible nitrogen. And there are certain fungi and bacteria which can help to give nitrogen to the plants in the plant root system. So if the plant were to recognize these microbes and then shut them down or produce compounds that would kill these microbes, it would actually hurt the fitness of the plants. The plants would do less well. This is in contrast, of course, to organisms or microbes that could get into the leaves or the roots, which would actually cause the roots to die. And so these would be pathogens. And so one of the key evolutionary processes for in plants is distinguishing between these beneficial and these unbeneficial or pathogenic organisms. So why, why wouldn't a plant just have its immune system on all the time? Why wouldn't it always be fighting things 
I guess my question is, why is it good to turn on your immune system sometimes as opposed to having it on all the time? So both because you don't want to kill everything around you because sometimes there are beneficial microbes, but also because all organisms, including plants, have limited resources. They have a certain amount of intake and an immune system is costly. To upregulate a few thousand genes in your genome to produce an immune response is costly, and it's taking away from your capacity to produce flowers, to produce root systems, to take up more nutrients. And so plants have to make a decision, uh, not a conscious decision, obviously, but <laughs> an evolutionary, they make a decision on how, much, how many resources they put into the immune response and how many resources they put into development and other things. And so if you can turn on your immune system and turn it off, then that means that you don't always have to allocate all your resources to immunity. Okay. And so from what you've said, it makes sense to me at least that it would be really important for these responses to be um, very sensitive and to be turned on in response to only the right things at only the right times. And this play back and forth between a plant's ability to respond or its R genes, which are the genetic basis of its response, and the uh, signals that the pathogens give um, are going to define the dynamics of that system in a big way. So it's kind of a push and pull where one side is trying to maybe beat the other one and win in this competition. And this back and forth is something that has been called in the past an evolutionary arms race, where two species are affecting one another in their ecology through competition or predation and driving the genotypes and also phenotypes or forms of these animals. Another example of that maybe would be cheetahs and gazelles, where the predator is trying to catch the prey, so it has to be really fast, and the prey is trying to run away, so it has to be even faster. And this back and forth ends up in a condition where the two organisms become both really, really fast, and uh, their ecology is kind of dominated by this competitive interaction. So some people have suggested that that same kind of evolutionary arms race dynamics is what's defining the way in which our genes and effector genes interact with one another and change over time. But from this, as I have learned from you, <laughs> there are certain predictions that you might get that, for example, our genes would sweep to fixation and there wouldn't be a reason to maintain diversity at a particular gene location. So could you comment on what the predictions are in this gene-for-gene gene and evolutionary arms race scenario on what we would expect diversity in plant responses to be like? Sure. So the classical understanding of what's happening or what should be happening in these arms races between plants and their pathogens. And again, many of these results extend to other organisms. But for plants and pathogens, the common thought would be that the plant would evolve a resistance gene that recognizes something about the pathogen. So it's advantageous to have the resistance gene so that over time, all of the plants in the population get the resistance gene. So the resistance gene fixes in the population. Then the pathogen wants to evolve to evade this resistance gene. So after a short amount of time, the pathogen uh, evolves the capacity to evade the resistance. And then that, whatever gene that that pathogen produces or, excuse me, encodes or loses, then sweeps that change also sweeps to fixation. And so it's an arms race in that you get one change in resistance and then a change in becoming a pathogen again, a change in resistance and then a pathogen, and it's sweeping through each of the populations over time, ratcheting up the interaction. 
And this obviously is really important for the way we approach and how we understand crops and agriculture. It seems like there's a constant attempt to best the pests, you know, trying to make the best pesticide that'll keep our crops safe. And so these kinds of dynamics inform the way that we approach pathogens in large, single species plantations, basically, of animals or of plants. So what do you think? Is that an effective strategy of trying to have lots of healthy plants? So it turns out that this is not an effective strategy, as Tom knows. Uh, this is not an effective strategy, as uh, crop breeders have found for the last over 100 years. A lot of research goes into determining a crop variety that's resistant to a specific strong pathogen. And then that crop variety is unleashed into the public domain. And within a few years, maybe a decade at the most, in a few cases, a few decades, the pathogen has evolved the capacity again to infect the plant. So given that so much effort goes into breeding this plant variety, and it takes so little time, we see that this kind of paradigm for how we tackle resistance and um, pathogens is not really working. Yeah, so this, despite the fact that it's kind of a losing battle, or at least it feels that way, that's still sort of the best thing we've got going for us, is to try to make these really resistant crops and then hope that the pathogens won't evolve an ability to get around that for at least a few years. And this is where your research sort of comes in. Your own work is trying to understand how it is that natural populations are able to survive and not be swamped out by pathogens in the same way that crops are. When we look at natural populations, particularly of Arabidopsis, which is, again, the organism that I study, we find that these resistance genes, when we look at a resistance gene, we find that they're millions of years old. So this is in stark contrast to the crop situation, which I explained to you, where a resistance gene is really only useful for a few years or a few decades. So how do you contrast the few decades versus millions and millions of years? What is that telling us about what's going on? So in my, my research, I'm interested in trying to understand why a resistance gene in a natural plant population, a plant population which isn't put out in monoculture by humans, but instead is allowed to propagate independently of humans, I'm interested in trying to understand what's going on in those natural populations and how can that inform how we do agriculture? And so in particular, you used Arabidopsis, the model plant species that is used around the world to understand how plants work and grow and develop. And you studied how it interacts with a particular pathogen called Pseudomonas syringae. And this pathogen is found all over the world. Is it a fungus? What? Bacteria. Bacteria. And so, yeah, use the fact that it's sort of a natural experiment where these plants are all over the world with their pathogen sometimes. Um, to understand diversity in the genes responsible for response and basically what it means for them to have these genes. So what exactly is it that you did in this study? So in this study, in the most basic level, we wanted to understand how the Arabidopsis was evolving in response to infection by Pseudomonas syringae, the microbe, the pathogen Pseudomonas syringae. And so what we did is we want to go back to the genetic level of their interaction and try to understand at the genetic level how they are co-evolving. We went to natural populations of plant and pathogen and cloned, so identified the genes that are interacting, the resistance gene in the plant that is recognizing a gene encoded by the pathogen. Okay, so you figured out what, what the genes are in a population of Arabidopsis and also whether or not the a pathogen was present. Is that correct? 
whether the pathogen is present and then the what gene recognizes what protein in the pathogen. Oh, I see. So, okay. Um, and what did you find? So we found, um, through the cloning, we found a resistance gene that recognizes gene in Pseudomonas syringae. But interestingly, we found that this resistance gene was while global, global, found in every population that we look at of Arabidopsis, in hundreds of different populations, it's at an intermediate frequency, meaning that only a fraction of the individuals within a population have the resistance gene, and a fraction of the individuals actually have a deletion of that resistance gene. So only a fraction of the individuals are actually resistant to the pathogen. So why might that be? Why, why wouldn't all of the plants have the genes to resist? Well, as we were talking about before, it's not always advantageous to be resistant. So in the absence of the pathogen, mounting a resistance response, so having a, the resistance gene is costly, and it takes away from other processes that will benefit the fitness of the organism. So it's possible in a scenario in which there's heterogeneity and pathogen exposure that some plants in a population is advantageous to be resistant and some plants in the population it's advantageous to not have the resistance gene. Yeah, so it's basically a trade-off, right? If you're in a part of the world where it's really dangerous because there's pathogens all over the place waiting to infect you, it's good to have the gene. But if you're in a place that doesn't have the pathogens that you're worried about, there's no need to. And it's better to invest your energy instead in your flowers and your seeds and making lots of babies and growing quickly. Um, so very cool. So how we usually think about plant-pathogen interactions is that it's a single host and a single pathogen interacting with one another. We think that there's, despite the fact that there are thousands of microbes on a plant and th thousands of microbial species on a plant and many different pathogen species, we think of one Arabidopsis plant battling one Pseudomonas syringae or one other microbe. But what we find in our study is this kind of tight pairwise interaction is not actually what's happening and that in a natural population, perhaps contrary to an agricultural population, there's a tremendous diversity of the microbes on the Arabidopsis, and so the Arabidopsis resistance is not tightly co-evolving with th that one pathogen. And I think what we think from our study is that it's this tight coevolution between one host and one pathogen which makes the resistance genes obsolete so quickly, but when you can kind of diversify the interaction that the resistance genes can persist. So in the wild, it's a lot more complicated, a lot more diverse than you see in most agricultural settings. And the implications is that this changes the way in which pathogens affect plant health and survivorship. So diversity almost seems to offer kind of a buffering or stabilizing way for these plants to survive. Yeah. Um, so back to crops. I mean, what do you think this means? How should we think about corn? What does it mean for our soy production? It's hard to say, obviously, because what I do is basic research, how to extend it up exactly. But there are several studies that show that if you plant multiple varieties of rice next to each other, and it may not be the highest yield, some of these may not be the highest yielding rice varieties, but you can still get higher yields overall because you have much, much less death to pathogen. So they, uh, the one study I'm thinking about right now showed a 90% reduction in loss to pathogen, which is very substantial. So it causes one to wonder whether 
diversifying the genotypic variety or maybe even the species variety could give some way to and durable resistance to pathogens. Yeah, well, I mean, it certainly seems to open up a lot of new research questions and opportunities maybe to improve how we approach plants and their pests, hopefully in a perfect world, leading to less pesticide maybe, leading to less oh, yeah. introduction <laughs> of really damaging. Wouldn't um, that be great? <laughs> yeah, so, well, thank you for talking about it. The title of this research is The Long-Term Maintenance of a Resistance Polymorphism Through Diffuse Interactions. Uh, recently accepted for publication. Do you want to say where? We can keep it a secret. Um, <laughs> may, it may be in press by the time this airs in a few weeks. But yeah, keep a look at the media because I think people will be really excited by this. I hope people will be talking about it. Um, so thanks again for all of you for listening to the Grok Science Show. And thank you, Talia, for joining me in studio today to talk about your work. Thank you, Tom. Thank you.